Let's head to Judges 4. We are studying, if you're joining with us, a series in the book of Judges, and there are some weird things that happen in Judges. We're going to hit one of those weird passages. Before I get started, any of you ever hear of Mark Twain? Okay, Samuel Clemens, he has a lot of quotable quotes. There are hundreds of them. They go like this sometimes. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Good thought. Good thought. Here's a quote. Never argue with stupid people. They'll drag you down to their level, that level and beat you with their experience. Okay. He has this quote. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Hmm, food for thought. He said this, don't let schooling interfere with your education. <laughs> now, suppose you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Cong Congress, but then I repeat myself. <laughs> he had this one for parents. He says, when a boy turns 13, parents should put him in a barrel, feed him through the hole. When he turns 16, plug up the hole. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if God didn't feel like plugging the hole when he came to Judges. The story of Judges, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, it is just a story of exasperation towards God. What happens is this. All through the book, there's 12 different cycles like this where the Jews rebel. Then after the rebellion, they get spanked. God uses the Canaanites, the enemies, the neighbors around them to discipline them. Then they repent. After they've been spanked, then they're very, very sorry. And God then sends a rescuer or a judge to deliver them from those enemies that are spanking them. Them. Then they have a period of rest. Sometimes it's 80 years, as we saw last week, the longest period. Sometimes just a few years. We're going to see one that's 20 years uh, throughout the day today. And, but then what happens is they repeat this rebellion. Then they repeat the reproof. Then they repeat the repentance and the rescue. And it goes time and time again that I, if I were God, I would plug up the hole in the barrel. We come to one story where it's happening. It's the story of Deborah and Barak. There are more questions than I have answers after studying this passage. Some of the questions are going to leave until tonight just because I can't deal with everything. But just let's get the gist of the story this morning. The story, when you look at it, if you, if you understand chapters 4 and 5 as you read them, and hopefully you've had a chance, as we mentioned last week already, we were going to be here. So you've done some reading ahead. Chapter 4 is the historical account. It tells you the narrative. It gives you the, the facts of what happened, how they go. They're, the people have rebelled. The God sends the spanking through the tribes of Canaanite led by a king named Jabin. They come in. They're oppressed for a number of years, uh, for some 20 years. And then what happens is God raises up a judge by the name of Barak, she, uh, uh, Deborah. She then asks Barak to be the general leading the troops. That's interesting. Jabin has a general named Sisera. Deborah, the leader, has a general named Barak. And so they go and they, they have this battle and there's a fight. We're going to see how that kind of unfolds this morning. But the conclusion is Barak leads the Jews into a battle and they're outgunned, outmanned, but they win the battle. And then they have a period of rest for a number of years. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5 is the song that Deborah and Barak wrote afterwards, the folk song, the, the ode, the saga that tells it. And in chapter 5, they give more details. As they go in a poetic form, they tell together, they, these two chapters give us a lot of detail. A whole lot of filling in the gaps from chapter five. And so when we start filling in the gaps, here's where we want to be today. Is there any particular lesson or lessons that we bring from the story? There's three major lessons. As you just think as the story just unfolds and how it, how it just develops, 
There's three major lessons, and they are supported by the New Testament. They serve more as an illustration of New Testament challenge. You see, number one would be this. Number one lesson is we see again the devastation in the story highlights the wages of sin. Now you and I know this. We read the New Testament where we are warned, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but we are under grace. Those of us who are born again, like Kevin shared in his testimony, we've come to a point where we called upon Christ to be our personal Savior. We are no longer supposed to be ruled and dominated by sin. We are under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but because God will freely forgive us? The answer is, God forbid. He goes on, he says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. His point is very simple. His point that is, if we allow unrepented sins in our life, if we just keep on going and don't deal with them, that those sins will take over our life. In fact, he writes in this same book, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. What he's saying is not only will it rule, but it will introduce more sin into our life. And it's going to dominate and take over. And there will be spiritual addictions to lying, cheating, grief, grieving on, and being miserable, uh, having a wrong attitude, being bitter, uh, being given to lustful thoughts, whatever it may be. He says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Talking about the first part, it's very clear that unrepentant sins will introduce disaster into our life both now and if we don't take care of them before eternity, it means into hell. And so he's talking about the devastation of sin. Be careful of it. Watch out for it. Be sure your sin will find you out in scriptures of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we learn that God doesn't ignore unrepented sins because he says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, he shall reap, whether it be to the flesh or to the spirit. There's a negative and positive. The point is... Sin is devastating. Watch how it is pictured in the book of Judges, chapter 4. They starts off with the story that it says in chapter 4, verse 1. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when the previous judge that we've talked about, Ehud last week, and then Shamgar last Sunday evening in the last verse of chapter 3, when they die, then all of a sudden they go back to sin. Now chapter 5 in the song tells us exactly what it was. They chose new gods, then there was war in the gates. And so here they are, the Jews are going to be there in their land, they've had peace, and they do this, they choose new gods despite having the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments aren't that old. They're about 200 years old now for the Jews at this time. And yet the Jews have ignored the Ten Commandments. They are putting other gods. They are calling upon the other gods. They are worshiping the other gods. They are no longer keeping holy the Sabbath day. They are no longer keeping pure. They are following gods that require that sacrifice. They get into sexual immorality. And so there's all kinds of vice going on in the land. And they know better. It's not that long ago that they have heard this despite knowing that just recently in their history History past, God has given them over. They have seen the devastation. Go back to chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God, Sir Balaam. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them. That's just a few, a couple generations ago that they gave themselves over to that wickedness. They knew from their grandparents what had happened, they knew of the problems, but they go right back to the 
sin. They go right back to the same old things. Even though God has blessed them with peace for the last 80 years and prospered them, they don't want to be sensitive to sin. In fact, they get involved with it. And as a result, because of their choosing other gods, choosing to do evil, here's what happens to them. We read in chapter 4 that the Lord, verse 2, Look at it, it says, The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and he reigned in Hazor. So what we have is this man that God says, that's it. I'm no longer going to take care of you. I'm going to give you to somebody else who's going to abuse you, who's going to take and ruin all of the peace that I've given you, who's going to take away all the, the strength that I've given you, who's going to just basically, he's going to molest you spiritually and physically from your land and your crops and everything else. This ruler, Jabin, by the way, is probably not a singular individual called Jabin. There are several of them mentioned in the Old Testament, Joshua Judges. It's kind of like a title like Pharaoh. And so that's what we understand Jabin being some leader in the Canaanite realm. And his troop leader, given in chapter two, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, is by the general by the name of Sisera. They talk about where they're located. Their capital is Hazor. 150 years before chapter 4, Hazor was invaded by the Jews, Joshua 11. They went in, the Jews went in and destroyed this strong outpost. They destroyed the city and they scattered all the Canaanites. In the last 150 years, the Canaanites have rebuilt, regrouped, not been, not been stopped by the Jews. They rebuilt it and it's right around 8-9 miles north of the Sea of Galilee where they have rebuilt this fortress and they are now using this fortress to dominate the central area of the Jewish nations. They have a city, a headquarters where it talks about Sisera. His headquarters it is in Harasheth. The word literally means the place of the timbers, understanding that probably it's a well-fortified fortress that the Jews were intimidated by this fort that was further into their land. Well, what happens is they take over the area. The Jews are petrified. Why? Go on a little bit further. It says in verse 3, The children of Israel cry, Why is it? Because he, that is Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron. And so you have this, this modern warfare against the Jews, who the Jews at this time, they are in real trouble. Go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, we looked at this briefly last Sunday night. It talks about what it was like in the land when the Canaanites under Jabin were in rule. It says in chapter 5, it says in verse 7, uh, in the middle of verse 6, let's pick up there. It says, the highways were unoccupied. Literally, the idea is there was very little traveling going on. No merchandising. Nobody was feeling safe to go down for pilgrimages over to the tabernacle. Nobody was, was doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of commerce. And the travelers walked in the rear roads. That is, they, anybody who did travel, they kept way to, the, to the, you know, the, the little lanes because there wasn't much travel, there wasn't much safety. And it goes on it go, in verse 7. The inhabitants of the villages cease. Literally, the idea is the countryside. The open area, that's what the villages is, the idea. The open countryside, the open farmland ceased. They were no longer uh, planting the crops. They were no longer harvesting the crops. They were being invaded. So all of a sudden, the people who lived in the countryside, they leave the countryside. They head for the mountains, literally. Or they head for the cities. But then we have the idea in chapter 5, verse 8, that there was war in the gates. That what cities they went to, they were attacked. And so these people aren't moving around. They aren't practicing their normal commerce. They're a group of people that are, that are just totally dominated by these, by these enemies. I did something I didn't want to do. 
There we go. Okay. So what happens here is the enemies keep on attacking them and attacking them. In fact, there's a statement made in chapter 8. It says there's 40,000 troops, but nobody had a spear. Nobody had any kind of shield. So they're weaponless. They're defenseless. They are totally dominated. That here these individuals lost their freedom and they lost their fight. They're individuals who lost their provisions. They're at a minimum. That these individuals are fearful. They're, they're discouraged. And of the 40,000 that are in their troops, not a single one says, let's fight. This happens and stays that way for 20 years. They're defeated. They're depressed. They're an impoverished people. Why? They chose new gods. The wages of sin is more devastation. They have been told, be sure your sin will find you out. They've been dabbling. They've been playing with it. They thought they'd get away with it. But God says, nope. Nope, nope, nope. I will bring into your life all kinds of problems. I told you this story once, several years ago. It's a story that probably, it's probably an urban legend, but it sure is a funny story about a woman who was vacationing down by the Mexican border, she and a friend. They were down there, and they were having a good time, and she's one of these animal lover peoples, and they were walking around, they were celebrating, looking for trinkets, and she saw this animal curl up in the corner under some, uh, under some chair there, and she thought, oh my, that animal looks in desperate shape, and it was. You could tell that the tail was torn, so you could see that it had been attacked, and there it was cowering. Well, she grabbed the thing, put it in a blanket, and being the animal lover that she was, she decided that she would try to bring this animal back to nourishment and she would pamper this animal. In fact, she took it back to the place where she was staying and her pets that were there, her two cats, they didn't like that she had brought this thing in. They stayed in one corner while she held this thing and she caressed this thing and she tried to feed it and the thing nipped at her a couple times but she just thought it was scared of her. Well, she goes to bed and she wakes up hearing some noise and she goes out and there's commotion. This animal is there all battered up and bloodied and bruised and her pets are dead. They have obviously gotten into a fight but this animal is really injured. She's really concerned for the animal so she decides to look up a vet at night to take it down to the vet's place. She goes early morning, she gets to the vet's office, she has this animal, she tells the story and she's got the animal being put on the table and she's talking to the vet and saying, you know, it's sick, my animals attacked it apparently and this poor thing, I'm just really concerned about it and he unwraps the thing and he grabs some of his equipment and he attacks the animal. He's trying to get rid of the animal. She goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he says, lady, he says, this isn't a pet. This is a Brazilian water rat. You have taken this thing and this is vicious. This carries diseases. This thing could attack you. But she was coddling it that night. She was holding it close. People do that all the time with anger, with greed, with maliciousness with envy, with gossip, with lust, with stealing, taking. And they think it's not dangerous, that it's a pet that they can control. That's not true. The Bible says that we ought not to coddle sin. It says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. That's literally what it means. You cannot shake your fist at God. For whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. There is a devastation that comes with sin. God says to you who are his children, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives. 
Sin is not something to be pampered. It is something to be put out of our life. He goes on, he says, For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again he quotes the Old Testament, where he says, The Lord shall judge his people. And then he concludes, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God hates sin. God disciplines sin. And you and I coddling it, we're wrong. The story is highlighting the fact that God does not remain silent if we harbor or if we hold to ourselves some personal sin. It needs to be confessed. It needs to be gotten rid of. It needs to be put out of your life. The story is highlighting the devastation that comes with sin. That's one of the highlights out of the story. But it also highlights this. The deliverance that's given highlights the will of God. The will of God. Now, I remind you what the will of God is. The will of God stated in the New Testament is simply this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is not willing that any should perish. God does not want to destroy. He does not want sin to devastate. He wants, his will is that all men should come to repentance. To repent of their sin, including you and me, who are born again, that we would repent after being born again, and we'd say, God, forgive us of the sins that we would harbor in our life. It is clear that if we confess our sins, written to believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is his will. His will is to forgive us, to cleanse us, to give us victory over our sin, so that he says that your sins and iniquities will I remember no more, but we must confess. Well, here's what happens in this story. To highlight that same thought, chapter 4, it says in verse 3, it says, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And so they cry, they plead, God do something. We admit we've made trouble for ourselves. We've gotten ourselves into trouble. Look at verse 6. God speaks to a woman by the name of Deborah, starting in verse 4. It gives some information. But she calls for Barak, and she says to him, it goes on in the middle of verse 6. Go and she says, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun? Don't you know this is what God has said? God has spoken. God says, I'm going to deliver. And the way that I'm going to deliver is through the hand of Barak. Even though they were slow to call, God was quick to hear. God responds to them. And what it teaches us is that when we repent, God is willing to bless, willing to forgive, and his forgiveness in this story is complete. Watch what he does. That he says, you're going to go down to battle these people. Well, the story picks up. And down in verse 15, after Barak leads the troop in battle, we read about the battle in verse 15. The Lord discomfited. The word literally means he routed. He routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera got off his chariot and fled away by on foot. And it goes on, tells him a little bit more, that Barak pursued after the chariots and after the hosts unto their garrison, the, the, the place of the timbers. And all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left." They overthrow this rule. This rule that was so bad, go down to the end of the chapter. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. The hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Go to chapter 5. Remember we said the highways were a problem? Remember the commerce was a problem? She said, writes in her song, My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Verse 9, Bless the Lord, 
speak now, you that ride on white asses, you that sit in judgment, you who walk by the way. Remember a couple verses before? You didn't walk on the roads. You didn't ride around. You were fearful. They that are delivered from the noise of the archers in the places of drawing the water, the villages are coming back. There it says they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord. The people are gathering again. Something that they hadn't done for the last 20 years, there's prosperity all of a sudden coming back. Why? Because they repented. God has done this time and time again. When individuals who said that they were going to serve him would go astray, he would deal with them. And then all of a sudden when they repented, he would bless their lives. We have time and time again of individuals in the scriptures who they stopped serving, who they, who they quit, who they went back to prejudices, who they ran away and went the opposite direction that time, who let the temper get the best of them. But when they repented, the Lord was able to use them, was willing to use them. You see, sin is devastating, but grace overwhelms the sin. And thank God that he does that. But you and I need to take advantage of God's grace quickly. You know, in fact, Jesus told a story to the crowd that he was talking to. And he said, I want to tell you a story so that if this one thing you get, nothing else, get this. You need to take care of the sin in your life by repenting of it quickly. And he tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. He tells the story about these two that they were, they were going about their life. The one was poor. There he was. He was eating the crumbs off, of the, off the rich man's table. But the rich man, he was having his life and enjoying life and not thinking about tomorrow. But then it says they both died. And then they opened up their eyes. Lazarus is taken to heaven because he had a relationship that he had made with God. But the rich man was so busy about making money and having fun and living his life that he didn't have time for God and he ends up in hell. And the story goes on. Jesus talks about how he lifts up his eyes in hell and he is crying. He is pleading because he's in the flames. And he says, please give me some relief. There is no relief. And he says, please send somebody to warn my brothers. They have the word of God. If they don't listen to the word of God, Jesus' point is very simple. His point is, you and I need to repent while we have opportunity. If you've never been born again, you must be born again. And the day of salvation is today. It's not next week. It's not next month. It is listening to the word of God that sin is devastating, but there is a Savior who is willing to forgive you of all your sin to give you victory as the choir sung about. You need Jesus Christ. There's a third aspect out of the story. And this is the bulk of the story. The development of the story indicates the ways of God. How God works. How God delivers. How God works and, and manipulates situations. I want you to catch a verse with me. Go back to verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. We already read it. It says, The Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak. Did you catch this thought? The Lord did the battle, but he did it through people's swords. Did you catch the element here? He is pointing out that in the way that God works, there is divine elements, there are human elements. That, in other words, God does the impossible, what we are to do, the the, what is possible. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. I want you to understand that the way the Lord works, he uses weak vessels. He uses the weaker vessels, the individuals who aren't showcased as being the heroic ones, who aren't elevated as being the ones that everybody would obviously turn to because they are the Superman or this Wonder Woman of the age and they are going to deliver us. 
He uses weak vessels. Now I'm going to make a, make a statement that some of you are going to be very upset about. But hear me totally. He used a woman. Okay. And I'm not trying to de- decry ladies at all. But back in Bible days, she would have been considered, ladies as a whole were considered a weaker vessel. A weaker element. You would never send a lady into combat in Old Testament. In fact, chapter 9, verse 4, one of the men says, Don't let it be said that I was slain by a woman. And so in, back in those days, here's the element that society would say would be the weak element. Deborah for one. Deborah, what we know about her isn't a whole lot, but there's some things that are stated. Some of you have already read this. It says in verse 4, she's a prophetess. Now tonight I'll talk a little bit more about that. It says that she's a prophetess. She is one. By the way, she's the only woman judge in this whole book. She's also a prophetess. She's the only judge besides Samuel who was judge and prophet. She is one who, who uh, would obviously, she wouldn't lead in battle, we know that. But here she is, she's a lady, it gives her husband's name, that here and she's leading in Israel. It talks in verse 5 that she's dwelling under a palm tree up in Ramah in Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Okay, we don't know anything about her husband. We do know that she lives in a region outside of the oppression. She's not living in the territory that's been conquered by the Canaanites. We, so she's concerned. Living on the outside, she's concerned what's happening to her kinsmen. She serves as a judge advisor. She is probably the first Ann Landers, okay, in the Old Testament. That's what she's doing. People are coming to her for advice. What it involves, I don't know beyond that. But we know in verse 6 that God speaks to her. And God told her to do something. He said, what I want you to do is get Barak and, and then what we already read, did not God say that you are to lead the troops and you're supposed to go down and God's going to deliver Sisera into your hands? And so she, this woman who people would say, okay, she's, the ladies aren't supposed to be leading in this regard. This, God is saying here, this is no put down. Okay, I am, I'm not using, typically using ladies in those roles, but I'm going to use a weaker vessel in this moment. One that wouldn't be expected. And she's going to lead. Now she's no Joan of Arc leading in the battle, but she is an instrumental and integral part of the story, getting Barak to lead the war. And so she goes and God uses her. And the point is, and really an important point for people of this era, of this time, to say God can use ladies. And he does. And that was an important thought to lead to the judges. By the way, I think it's important in the Christian circles to say the same thing today. Because for some reason, some guys sometimes think that the only ones that God can use are men. That's not true. That's just not true. God uses the ladies. And so here in this text, he uses somebody who society would say would be a weaker vessel. He also uses a weaker vessel in the aspect that he uses Barak. Barak is this military guy from where we don't know. We have no clue of what his background is, why she's told to get him, why he, what he did in the past that 10,000 would rally to him, but there must have been something. Some way, somehow, something's happening that we don't know about. But Barak is there. Again, we don't know how strong, how, what, his, what his story is beyond this, that she calls him to come and see him. She sends him a text. He gets it, and he travels 70 miles to come and see her below the palm tree. He talks to her. She tells him, God is going to give you the victory. You lead the troops. Watch his weakness. His weakness, he goes on in verse 7. God says, I will draw unto thee, uh, draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, and his chariots with all of his multitude, I will deliver him into your hand, Barak. 
Here's his weakness. It's seen in verse 8. Barak says to the woman, to Deborah, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I don't know what that means. Did he look at her and saying, She's like the Ark of the Covenant. She's God's mouthpiece. If we have her, she's going to bring us good luck. I don't know. She's obviously a spokesperson for God at this moment. And so I need you to tell me what's going on. I don't know what his reasons were. His reasons, uh, his reasons could be many, but he hesitated. He hesitated in listening to an explicit command of the Lord. He's told to get the 10,000. He says not, and he hesitates like Moses hesitated, like Jeremiah hesitated. And God had to reprove him. God had to rebuke him, which he does in this text. He, rebu- he is rebuked by the next statement. She says to him, I will go with you. Notwithstanding, somebody asked them, why did her husband let her go with, with Barak? I don't know. Okay? But he says, I will surely go. Maybe the husband went. We don't know. It says, notwithstanding, the journey that you take shall not be for your honor. For the Lord shall give Sesera, sell Sesera into a hand of a woman. And she arose and went with Barak to Kadesh or to the place where the battle is going to take place. And so he gathers the troops. The story goes on. He called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men at his feet and Deborah went with him. And then we jump down a little bit further, verse 12. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Binoham, has gone to Mount Tabor. Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 of the chariots and all the people that were with him. Now he's coming with the tanks. Remember, Israel does not have spears or shields. All they have are daggers. And they're going to go against chariots. There's not going to be a fair competition here. How do you get close enough to somebody riding a chariot? It's not going to work. But God says, I'll take care of it. So Sisera gathered together the chariots, even the 900 and all the people that were with him. They come from the place of the timbers to the Kishon River. And Deborah says to Barak, it's time, okay? For this is the day which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into your hand. Is not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, 10,000 men, and they beat Sisera soundly, and as a result, they, give, they get the victory. Now, here's my point. God uses people who struggle with faith. Thank God he does, or none of us would be used So he uses weaker vessels. Then we have a third weak vessel. It's Jael. Jael is a woman that there are so many comments about her, of her wickedness and her deceit and all these things that she has. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. Let me just fill in what we have here for right now. This is a woman who, as the story tells, her husband is a relative or a descendant of Moses' father-in-law. We read that as the story unfolds. That we also learn that she's in a nomadic tribe. Her husband's tribe just moves from region to region to region. But at this time, her husband has made an alliance with the Canaanites. They have historically been pro-Israel, but not now. He has switched sides. He is on the side where, they, where there's bigger money, bigger forces. So Sisera is beaten in battle. He has to flee. He's headed back towards Hazor, the capital. And as he goes, he comes to Heber's tent. 
There's no mention of Heber, but there's mention of Jael, his wife. And the story goes out, it says in verse 17, when Sisera fled, he fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, and there's no, because there was peace between them. And it goes on, Jael went out to meet Sisera. Turn in, my lord, turn in. Fear not. When he goes in, he comes into the tent, she covers him up. Remember, he's going to be chased, so she's trying to help him. And he said, give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink. I am really thirsty. She opened up a bottle of milk, she gave him drink and covered him. And many think that it's yogurt instead of milk. And again, he said, stand at the door of the tent and it shall come to pass that if anybody comes and inquires, you should say to them, he's not here. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent. This is a spike from pounding in the ground. Took a hammer in a hand, went softly to him because he's sound asleep, and smote the nail into his temple and fastened it to the ground. That's pretty gory. That's pretty, you know, that's pretty pointed and crass. And there's a whole bunch of things. I'll talk more about it tonight, okay, uh, as far as why she did what she did. But she takes the opportunity to slay him, and she takes him out. She's a weaker vessel that she uses. You know why? She's not even a Jew. God used in that time. They needed to know this. They needed to know that God can use ladies. God can use men who struggle. God can use even Gentiles. God can use people that the company of God who read this in the original would say, hey, they can't be used, they can't be used, they can't be used. I, I, I can't be used because I, I'm not heroic. I don't have the bravado of so-and-so. And he's saying, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Well, I can't be used because, you know, I'm a proselyte. You can be used. I can't be used because I'm a female. Yes, you can. You, can, you can't be used because I'm a youngster. No, you, you can be used. That's his point. The way God works is God, he has this, this human element that he'll use. And in this human element, he's going to work a victory through weaker vessels. And by the way, the way God works is this way. God does his part. You do your part. He assists when he calls. This is the fascinating part that most people don't catch. The question that you have to ask is, you know, how does the victory come? The New Testament tells us how. It says that we are not supposed to be sufficient in ourselves. We are not to say it's all of me. It says not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent, who has enabled us to serve him. He takes weak vessels. And in this story, what he does is God says, I'll bring Sisera to you, you just do your part. Barak, you get yourself in position. I'll bring him to you. And then it says, I will, uh, that God routed him. How did God rout Sisera? Go to chapter 5. Chapter 5 tells us very clearly what happens here. There's divine intervention. In chapter 5, verse 20, it says this. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away, that ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. It's a song. It's a folk song. It's poetic. And she's singing about the idea that God got involved in the battle. That God did something miraculous providential that made it possible for people with swords, without spears, without shields, could get close enough to the chariots and take them out. All 900 chariots. And here's what he did. God sent a rain. God apparently flooded it all of a sudden. That all of a sudden what happens is the rain comes, they are, and here's the battle scene. You've got on the ridge here, Mount Tabor there, you've got the ridge here, the Jews are on the ridge. Down below is the plain, part of the plain of Esdraelon, the plain of Megiddo. You ever hear of that before? You ever hear it's going to be used as a plain for future warfare? 
Okay, the river Kishon is flowing through there. And it's got a lot of clay, clay uh, base as far as the element of the material, the, the dirt that's there. When clay gets wet, what does it do? It starts to mire. It starts to stick. And so what happens is, the, it's happened in history several times. Napoleon brings troops here. He's vastly outnumbered by the Turks. And all of a sudden, rains come, and the rains flood that river real quickly, and it wiped out many of the Turkish troops. World War, II, World War I, the British were having a, a campaign in this region. They made comment that if it rained for 15 minutes, this whole plane, they could not use their cavalry. They couldn't move around. One, one officer wrote this, certain tracks of this plane's surface are like strong adhesive mud. Now when horses and mules pass over such places, they are often unable to pull out their feet. If a horse's foot is buried in the mud long enough to allow the clay to close over it from above, the horse becomes extremely, it's difficult to draw his leg out. He instantly changes his gait to a series of plunges, rapid, short, jerky steps, snorting, groaning. Go to chapter 5, verse 22. Chapter 5, 22. Watch the description of the battle. Then were the horse hoofs broken by means of the prancings, the prancings of their mighty ones. Doesn't that sound like this officer's writing? That the horses, all of a sudden, the, the, the chariots and the horses became not a... They're stuck. Yeah, they're stuck in the mud. Okay? And as a result, they... they if your battle plan involved these people in the, and they had tactics, all of a sudden they can't move. The horses are going wild. What happens to your battle plan? Okay. What about the chaos that, it, that ensues? All of a sudden these men can run up and they can pull you off the chariot. God worked and intervened in such a way that the, the soldiers, they were all of a sudden vincible. Their, their strength became their weakness. The timing of the storm was just right. The amount of rain was just right. It was just what they needed. You know what the irony of this whole thing? The Canaanites worship Baal. Baal is the god of the rain. Wouldn't that discourage them that their god turned on them? All this plays in that God used, his, used people who were weak and he assisted them. That all of a sudden he intervene, intervenes and helps them. Isn't this the case through history? When people look at impossible situations, God moves and does, opens the jail doors. God moves. He also multiplies the bread. God moves. He softens hearts of people that, that Paul was told to go preach. God moves. When all of a sudden we think that it's an impossible situation, God turns it around. We think that the trials are too big. No good can come out of them. All of a sudden we see the hand of God. God working here. God working there. God assisting us. We go to prayer and we say, ah, oh, this can't work and we pray about it and all of a sudden we see the hand of God. God is amazing to assist us. Use us who are weak vessels to assist us. And you know what else shows out of this story? God, who the way he works, he honors those who do their part. He honors them. Now just to summarize it this way, let me put it this way, okay? Deborah is called the mother of Israel in chapter 5. Jael, or Barak, uh, Jael is called the woman blessed above all the women two times. She is called blessed among all the women. Almost sounds like what the Magnificat that, that Mary is told. And Barak, do you know where Barak shows up in the New Testament? Anybody remember? Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame. 
These people were weak individuals. These people were struggling. These people were battling. And God used them. God assisted in such a way. It is an amazing story. The way God works. A challenging story. That it concludes at the very end. It says, let them that love him be as the sun. That is, go out in your boldness. Go out and shine and watch how God can use you. And how he will do amazing things. The key is that we be found faithful. The key is that we don't pull in, pull up a stake and say, oh, I can't be used. No. We repent, we enjoy grace, and we watch what God can do through us. When God starts working, it's an amazing what he can do. There's a missionary who shared the story with us several years ago. That there was a blind woman in the area where he was working. She got saved. This blind woman was burdened that she could be used somehow, some way, be used to reach others. But she was illiterate. Learning to read would be nigh to impossible. She lived in this impoverished state. But she went and she said to the preacher, to the missionary, she says, can I get a Bible? And I would like a Bible, especially in French, because that was the commerce language there. She didn't speak it. But she wanted, and she says, I want a red letter edition. You know what that means. The words of Jesus are... In red, okay. And so he gave it to her. He wasn't sure what this woman was going to do. And this woman who wanted to do something, and here she is, a blind woman, can't do a whole lot. She decided that she was going to be a witness. She went down to where there was a school for boys. And she sat outside the gate on a regular basis. And she would sit there with her Bible and she would call out as the boys were dismissed. Any of you speak, read French? Any of you read French? Any of you read French? And some would kindly come up and say yes. And she said, had told the preacher, make sure you circle John 3.16. And she would show him this text, John 3.16, and say, can you read this to me? What does it say? And the kid would read it and translate it for her. And she says, do you know what that means? And then she would explain it. And she would share the word. In her ministry, the missionary said, 24 young men ended up getting saved and becoming church leaders because of her. Because of her. Don't tell me you can't be used. Don't tell me that you can't all of a sudden make a difference. Sheila Burke writes in her book about an experience she had at a Christian conference for a ministry. She and her partner were leaving this conference and they wanted to catch the, the, a ride to the airport. And so there was another guy that they had met there. His name was Bruce. And he, they said, hey, we're all headed for the same flight, uh, same time. And so do you want to ride with us? So they got the taxi. They're riding. And they're starting to share stories. And they're starting to talk. And talk about things. And, and as they're talking, they're, they're talking about their different ministries. And it came out that they asked him exactly what ministry he works for. He told them. And her, her uh, partner says, in her writing of her endeavors, the partner that wrote with her said, Oh, I remember your, your group that you work with. They did a conference that was really a, a fascinating conference. I attended it a number of years ago. In fact, it was in like 1974. I was up in New Hampshire. And I went to their conference that they were hosting. And I went as a college student and I got saved. And then I, I had my sister come along. The next day, she got saved. And as a result, we witnessed to our family. And this, this partner is sharing with the, the, those in the car. We got saved. Family got saved. And now I'm working in this publishing, Christian publishing thing. My sister is working for missions around the world. Several of our other relatives are busy serving around the world. And the guy concluded by saying, you know, because of that conference back in 74... There's ministries all over the world. 
that was just a, I, I, I really appreciated your group's ministry. I don't know if you had anything to do with it back then. The guy who was writing with them, who was part of that ministry that hosted that group, he just sat there for a while, and then he started tears down his cheek. And I said, well, you know, do we upset you? And he said, no. He said, um, when I came to this ministry, they asked me if I would head up hosting any conferences. And he said, that was the first conference I volunteered to host back in New Hampshire in 74. I thought it was such a failure, I've never volunteered to lead another one since. Can God use somebody that feels weak? And that man needed that encouragement. I shared on a Wednesday night about a year ago about a lady, 70-year-old woman in Melbourne, Australia. True story. This gal gets saved at 70 years of age. She's really burdened to be used by God. She wants God to use her in some way to reach people. So she goes to the pastor and says, Pastor, how can I serve? I don't know any Bible. I just got saved. What can I do? He gave what pastor should say. If you don't know it, no, no one answer. What do you say? Pray about it. Okay, just say pray about it. It's, it's the bad answer. He says, why don't you pray about it? So she prayed about it for a few days, and she had something come to her mind. And she prayed some more, and it's, it just stuck there. It just stuck, stuck there. So finally she gave in, and she went down to the local store that sold 3 by 5 cards. She got two packs of them. And she hand-wrote on these two packs of 3 by 5 cards, If you feel lonely, come to my house for tea at 4 o'clock today. She wrote all these cards by hand, gave her name, her number, and then she walked down two blocks to the University of Melbourne's campus. And she started putting them up everywhere on the campus. Bulletin boards, dining hall, bathroom mirrors. She put them everywhere. Everywhere she could. She put this up. And she went home expecting God to work and use her. She got the tea ready, sat down, 4 o'clock comes, 4.15, nobody. 5 o'clock, nobody. She packed it all up, put it away. She got it all out the next day, got it ready again. Sat down, nobody. That went on for 14 days. She did it on the 15th day. Because she said, this is my ministry, I'm going to do it. On the 15th day, there was a knock at her door. There was a girl from Indonesia that came in, they talked. I'm sorry, it was a guy from Indonesia. Came in, they talked. They had about an hour. He had to go back to campus. He goes back to campus, and as he told the story afterwards, he went to, to where his room was, and he said to some of his friends, he says, I've had the neatest time this afternoon. I found a lady who reminds me of my grandmother. You've got to come with me. Fifteen years she continued that ministry on a daily basis. When she passed away, 70 young adults were there at the funeral volunteering to be her pallbearers because she had led every one of them to the Lord. Can God use weak vessels? You have to say yes. And when you look in the mirror, you have to say, thanks be to God, he does. All we need to do is be willing. Be willing to be used by God. To be willing to say to the Lord in song, in prayer, Take my life and let it be. And this is our prayer as we close today.